Good morning, everyone. Hope you're ready for Halloween this week. I saw one company suggesting that instead of handing out candy to the trick-or-treaters, you should give them something healthy, like a, like a little bag of salad. Salad. I mean, that's every kid's dream come true on Halloween, am I right? Gummy bears or salad, of course, I'll take the salad. I mean, I could just hear Charlie Brown, instead of saying, you know, I got a rock, he'd say, I got kale. Same difference. Well, as we get into today's message, I'd like you to do something for me. If you've got a pen or pencil, I want you to write something down on the back of your bulletin or on a piece of paper, or you can type a note on your cell phone. Go ahead and get your phone out, create a new note. I'd like everyone to jot down your answer to this very simple question. Are you ready? It's very simple. Just write down the answer to this question. Where will you be this time tomorrow? Where will you be this time tomorrow, and what will you be doing? Just write that down, TTT, this time tomorrow, at 10.05-ish. Uh, you could be in a classroom or an office cubicle. You could be grocery shopping or in a yoga class. Could be commuting or having a cup of coffee with a friend. Whatever it is, just write that down. Where will you be, TTT, this time tomorrow? And hold on to that because you're going to need that at the end of today's message, okay? This morning we're into another pretty obscure part of the Bible, the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I don't want to get into the debate about how you pronounce his name. It's just how you place the emphasis on each syllable, you know. I'm sticking with Habakkuk. Though this little three-chapter book isn't well known, there are many theologians and Bible scholars who would say that Habakkuk is one of the most important books in the entire Bible because it tackles one of the toughest questions, one of the, well, the most distressing problems that human beings have ever had to face. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And why does it seem like the wicked prosper? That's the problem that Habakkuk is wrestling with in his little book. Or phrase it this way, how can a good God allow evil to exist? How can God allow pain and suffering and heartache? Is he really a God of love or is God indifferent to our suffering? Does God just not care about all the injustice and evil we see done to people in our world? Or maybe God does care, but he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. Maybe, maybe God is too weak. That's the cry of Habakkuk's heart. God, what are you doing? What are you going, what are you up to? Why God, why is all this so confusing? You see, Habakkuk writes out of his questioning. He writes it as a dialogue that he's having with God. His book reads like a poetic debate between Habakkuk and Yahweh God. And here's how he states the problem in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Sounds like that could have been written in this morning's news. Violence, wrongdoing, strife, conflict, twisted justice. Habakkuk is facing some really serious problems, and so he's not writing an abstract, kind of purely philosophical musings about the nature of God and human suffering. He is in the trenches in a life and death situation. 
He lived in the time right before the Babylonians invaded the land of Judah in the 6th century B.C. When the land had been cut, really the nation had completely decayed. His once great country was on the verge of total anarchy. This was not some academic exercise for him. Everywhere he looked, it was bad, bad, and more bad. Yes, he understood that God was at the end of his rope with the disobedient and defiant nation that had, had refused God's many repeated offers of forgiveness and mercy. But Habakkuk is still wondering, God, how could you let it get so bad? How, how could you let so much evil run roughshod over your beloved land? Why doesn't God just intervene? You know, send a few miracles, make it all right. Just snap his cosmic fingers and poof, make everything right. Habakkuk sees the suffering under the corrupt and unjust leaders of his land. He sees his neighbors, his own people, chasing after false gods, worshiping pagan idols. And he's wondering, why doesn't God just step in and do something dramatic, something unmistakable to set things right? I, I think I've asked that exact same question more than a few times myself over the past decade. God, why don't you intervene in some dramatic way and just make things right. The name Habakkuk means the embracer. To get at the meaning of his name, you should think of a parent whose daughter or son has been injured by some cheap shot by a bully in a sporting event. I mean, the really cheap shot by that mutant kid who is twice the size of everyone else and has the questionable birth certificate. And to make things worse, the ref saw it and just let it go. I mean, no penalty, nothing while your child, you know, may have a concussion. The parent gathers up the hurt child and comforts him or her while a bitterness, sort of an anger, enters their own heart because of the injustice of it. And inside you kind of cry out, this is wrong. Why doesn't God do something? How can a just God permit such things to happen? In that way, the prophet Habakkuk gathered up all the hurt of Judah and cried out to the seeming silence of God. It is a hard lesson to learn that life isn't always fair and the good guys don't always win. And that's what Habakkuk is saying in verses 2 through 4. Well, then God answers, starting in verse 5, 5 through 11. Says, in effect, I can't read it all today. Says, in effect, I'm, I am doing something, but you're not going to understand it. I am doing something, and you're not going to like it. I am raising up the Chaldeans, which was another name for the Babylonians, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to punish the wicked in Israel. I am not indifferent. I am moving to judge evil, but you should be careful what you wish for. Well, this brings no relief to the troubled prophet. I mean, if he was puzzled by the apparent inactivity of God against the wickedness of the rulers within Judah, he is now even more troubled by the problem of how a righteous and holy God could use an even more ungodly nation to punish his own people. I mean, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they, they were no, well known for their indifference to human suffering, their gross immorality, and their, the callous luxury that they enjoyed at the expense of others. And now as God is going to use that despicable nation as the means of his judgment against Judah. For Habakkuk, that just did not compute. He could not comprehend how a loving God could let that happen. You know, honestly, though, Whenever someone asks those big theological questions about why would a good God allow evil to exist in the world, I think what is really being asked is much more personal. What's really being asked is, well, what about me, God? 
Are you going to allow evil to kind of intersect with my life? Are you going to let something bad happen to me? Or maybe it has already has happened and you're asking why. Why would, why would God let this happen to me? I think that our questions about evil and suffering at their root are always very personal. Why would you allow me to suffer? According to Nikki Gumbel, the originator of the Alpha Course, which has engaged more than 24 million spiritual seekers in 169 countries around the world in trying to kind of answer their, their basic questions about faith in Christ, Nikki Gumbel says the question of suffering is the number one question people have about God. And it's the number one excuse people use to stop taking any steps towards faith in God. They're angry because something bad, some, some form of suffering came into their lives, undeserved, they think, and now they blame God for it. They carry a huge chip on their shoulders, think God, God should have somehow shielded them from the normal course of life. They, they don't understand that we do live in a fallen world, that the world is not how God originally designed it to be. The world is off-center. The world has lost its original perfection so that there is disease and death and sin and all its consequences, and no one is immune from those consequences. And because they don't understand that, people often then direct their anger about their suffering. They direct it at God, consciously or unconsciously say, it's his fault. This is really an important thing for us to all remember. Because sometimes we as believers, we don't portray an honest picture of life to the people around us. We're afraid to be honest about our struggles and our questioning as though that somehow that makes you less of a Christian, less of a faithful believer. Some think the, the church is the place you have to pretend to be happy and have it all together. But that's not honest because struggles and griefs remain. Challenges, they continue. And as we step back and look at the big picture, we see that suffering is a part of life for everyone. And if we're not honest about suffering, then when people experience a difficult situation, it shakes their faith to the core because they think they're not allowed to struggle, that they're not allowed to ask those tough questions. If Habakkuk teaches us anything, it is that it's natural to question God. It's normal to ask why. It's okay in prayerful conversation to ask God, why do you allow me to suffer? Habakkuk isn't alone in this kind of asking. The Psalms are full of King David's honest questions, even his anger towards God. The desire for explanation, it rings throughout the Bible. For example, Jeremiah 12, verse 1, we read, You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice, because why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all the faithless, the faithless live at ease? It is a question of justice. God, why do you let people do evil things? Whether it's the image of a starving child, the distress of someone who's lost their home in a flood, the diagnosis of cancer, the, the randomness of a car accident, a broken relationship, a failed business enterprise, the death of a loved one. When we meet suffering, the thought leaps into our minds, why, God, how could you allow it to happen? Why don't you protect me? Sooner or later, all of us will have reason to ask that question. Why me, Lord? Every person who lives long enough will eventually encounter circumstances that are very difficult to explain theologically. Cancer, sudden infant death syndrome, divorce, rape, loneliness, infertility, rejection. These and another, a million other sources of human suffering produce 
inevitable questions that trouble the soul. Over the years, I've learned that we shouldn't be fooled by the happy faces we often see on Sunday mornings. Everyone who comes to church has a story, and that story usually includes pain and suffering. Behind each smiling face, you'll discover a tale of pain, difficulty, heartache, and many unanswered questions. Not that we don't also experience happiness. We do, at least most of us do. But no one gets a free ride through life. No one escapes some level of suffering. Into each life, some rain must fall. No one lives in sunshine forever. But let's consider for a moment a few of the different ways people can commonly react when they're facing suffering or difficulty. Because the first is denial. This is where most of us begin in dealing with suffering. It's the Liam Neeson tough guy mentality. You know, just kind of grit your teeth, smile even when you're hurting, never let them see you sweat. Don't reveal what's real. Don't reveal what's real. When someone is in denial, they won't admit the truth even when they know you know the truth. You'll say, you know, how are you doing? And they'll say, great, I'm doing great. As though super spiritual people can never be down or sad or depressed or hurting. You know they're not telling the truth. And we're all like that occasionally. There's something in all of us that makes us pretend that, that everything's okay, even when it's not. We pretend the problem is not there or it's not as bad as it really is. But then we get angry. We get bitter. We shake our fists at God silently in our own hearts. But you know, anger eventually bleeds. Anger spreads and eventually we take it out on the people around us. They bear the brunt of our anger when it's not really them that we're angry at. And maybe the anger that we carry turns into blame. We blame others for the hurt we're experiencing. It's their fault. It's their decisions, not mine. Anger and blame are often two sides of the same coin. The boss was a jerk. That's why I lost my job. And you carry that anger into your next job and your next job loss. When we don't deal with anger constructively, it affects every relationship in life, including your relationship with God. It is impossible to go through life angry, blaming others, and maintain a warm and positive relationship with the Lord. You can't hate your neighbor and love God at the same time. Some Christians live that way for years, and then they wonder why God seems so distant and their prayers feel so empty, their Christian experience so lifeless. If, if that describes you, please take a good look inside because you'll never really get better until you deal with that sense of anger and blaming within. So our final option regarding suffering is to accept it and to learn from it. You can deny it. You can get angry. You can blame someone else or blame God. Or you can accept what happens to you and begin to learn from it. Of those four ways, only the last way is truly a Christ-like way of dealing with the difficulties of life. When trouble comes, you really only have two choices. Either you become a victim or you become a student. And it's much better to become a student. Being a student means asking yourself, what have I learned? What am I learning from this? It's asking, okay, where is God in all this? How do I encounter Christ in all this? How do I grow through this painful experience? Now, having said that, I have to admit that there are many questions I can't answer about why bad things happen to God's people. Sometimes the reasons are obvious. More often than not, they're obscure. If I had all the time in the world, I still couldn't answer all the questions about suffering because some of them simply defy human explanation, at least on this side of the grave. 
And ultimately, that's the answer given to Habakkuk. God reminds him, I am sovereign over all. Some of life will not make sense until you can see the whole of it, until you can look back and see the whole thing from, from God's perspective. An explanation will come to you, but not on your timetable. That's what God says in Habakkuk 2.3. He says, for the revelation awaits its time. It hastens to the end and will not prove false. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God is saying, Habakkuk, the answer you're looking for, it isn't going to happen right away. There's going to be a lapse in time, but it will come. And this is the character of God's revelation. God says, first, an event's going to happen. Then he says, don't worry about what happens in between. Even though it looks like everything's going wrong, what I have said will happen is going to happen. And if it seems to delay, you're going to have to wait for it, but it will come. And then God goes on to state a principle that's quoted three times in the New Testament. Forms the basis for the greatest movement that God has ever had among human beings. He says in verse 4, Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fall, but the righteous shall live by faith. Those words are quoted in the New Testament in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrew. These words from Habakkuk are quoted in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. They were the words that actually lit the fire in the heart of Martin Luther that started the Protestant Reformation. This Sunday is actually called Reformation Sunday. The righteous shall live by faith. Not by circumstances or observances or by reasoning, but by faith, by trust, by confidence in the fact that, that God, what God has said will happen. The righteous shall live by faith. Now that phrase has usually been attached to the grand scheme of the Protestant Reformation, but we also forget it's a very practical for, verse for us for every day. We know that that's how it first made sense to Martin Luther, that grand sense that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But let's bring it down to a daily level. In these words, Habakkuk shows us that there are really only two possible ways to go through life, two possible attitudes. Either we face it with faith, depending on God, even in the face of suffering or of circumstances we don't fully understand, or we face it with fear, depending on our own abilities to try and reason everything out. Those are the only two attitudes, and every day you kind of face a battle between which one is going to rule your life. Is it going to be a, a faith day or a fear day? Which one will rule your life? And which one wins that daily battle makes all the difference in your attitude and your quality of life. You know, the atmosphere of our world is so poisoned with negativity these days. Don't you agree? So much negative. Negativity is always rooted in fear. Complaining, anger, jealousy, sadness. They're ultimately caused by fear that expresses itself in these negative ways. Fear of the unknown causes us to protect the status quo, even when change would be beneficial. Fear of being powerless causes us to complain. Fear of failing kind of leads to inaction to feeling paralyzed or powerless. Fear of being hurt leads to anger. Fear of not being good enough, successful enough, smart enough leads to jealousy. Fear of not being loved leads to loneliness. Fear holds us back from living the life God wants us to live. It paralyzes us from taking those positive actions. Uh, it makes us bark at people, drive people away who are actually trying to help us. What do fear and faith have in common? Well, some wise guy will say, well, they both begin with the letter F. But deeper than that, what do they have in common? They both believe in a future that hasn't happened yet. 
They both believe in a future that hasn't happened yet. Fear believes in a negative future. Faith believes in a positive future. If neither the positive or negative future has happened yet, then why not choose to believe in the positive future? Why not believe that great things are coming your way? Why not walk in faith that God knows what he's doing? But it's up to you to choose. The only thing that can hold us back from choosing faith is maybe the fear of disappointment. But the righteous shall live by faith. Telling yourself a story of faith will fill you up with hope and optimism, inspiration. Telling yourself a story of faith changes you from a passive victim to a positive actor. Believing that God has a positive future leads to powerful actions today because you believe in God. You can believe in yourself and and you can take positive actions necessary to create a positive future. Faith helps you turn challenges into opportunities because faith is attractive. People will join you. People will be attracted to you. They'll be inspired by you. If you're negative, others will be negative towards you. That's just a rule of life. The the Bible says you reap what you sow. So positive, faithful energy is contagious. The righteous shall live by faith. When you have faith in your heart, it radiates to your whole body. Positive faith in God is contagious. So I want to challenge you to project that faith to others and see the impact. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a choice that we're given every day, and it's a big choice. You can either be a fear germ and infect other people with your negativity, or you can be a big dose of vitamin C and infuse them with your positive faith in the Lord and his ultimate goodness. Either way, you're influencing people. You choose how you'll influence others. So TTT, how will you live this time tomorrow, in fear or in faith? Look at what you wrote down about your tomorrow. And whatever circumstances you're going to find yourself tomorrow at this exact time, I want you to repeat Habakkuk's simple phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. And then ask yourself, am I? Am I living by faith? Am I living with a sense of Christ's presence in my life, even though I don't have all the answers to all of my questions? This time tomorrow, am I living in faith? Am I expressing that positive faith in God to those around me? This time tomorrow, consciously invite Christ into your classroom, your spin class, your phone call, your meeting, your moment alone with that cup of coffee. Invite Christ into your day. Just be open to his presence in your circumstances. And then see what that's like, to know that Christ is with you. And if you'd like to, to share your TTT story with me, your this time tomorrow story, about how you see Christ at work in your life at that moment, Would you text it to me? Just a simple sentence or two describing your this time tomorrow story. My cell number's on the screen if you want to text me. And just share with me what you're doing and in what way was Christ present with you in your this time tomorrow. And then if it's okay with you, I might anonymously share some of those stories in future messages so others can be inspired by your story of faith. You know, the disciples often did not understand what in the world Jesus was doing. They didn't understand his teaching about his own suffering, his own death, not at all. Remember in that upper room when he gathered with his disciples for the Last Supper, he did the servant's job of washing their feet to remove the dust from the journey. They didn't understand how he could do such a menial thing. And so Jesus said, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. That's John 13, 7. That's really his answer to us in the face of suffering. 
That's his answer to us in the face of difficulty. He says to us, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. Living in faith means we go on with life content with that answer. Content that some things will remain a mystery until Christ decides to reveal them. And so the righteous live by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, for our this time tomorrow and for each and every day, we want to be inviting you into our circumstances, knowing that you're already there. What we're really doing is just opening our minds in awareness to your presence and to see your invisible hand at work in the details of our daily life, Lord. Help us to be those who live by faith, who live by a positive expectation that God knows what he's doing, even in the most difficult circumstances. And Lord, help us just to trust you and to radiate to others the positive faith that we have in you, Lord. Our world is so negative. They need us to be salt and light. So this time tomorrow, Lord, may we truly be those who learn how to live by faith in a good God. And we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.